Welcome to another episode of the Life Optimization Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Ronnie Landis. And I have a really special guest with me today, Mr. Eric Godsey. And we're at his beautiful house in his recording studio and dropping into what is going to be a deep rabbit hole. I can feel it already. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot that, that I could say. We're just going to like lead into the flow of the conversation. But I, I first became aware of you a couple of years ago through Aubrey Marcus's podcast. I'm sure that's how most people found you originally. And I really resonated with your, your train of thought, like all the things that you're into philosophically, psychologically, um, you know, you're deep into Carl Jung, which I've been deep into for many years, um, exploring the fringes of the psyche in particular, and your way of articulating a lot of like disparate elements of the human experience, but weaving them together in a very coherent and understandable way, which I think resonates with so many people. And it definitely did with me. And also your exploits with plant medicines and ayahuasca in particular, which that's also something that we share and something I want to get into in this, this episode. So cool. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, huge congratulations on the book that you wrote. Um, I have a lot of people who, when they meet me, they'll give me their book. And uh, there's a deep congratulations to them mm. for having accomplished that. But many of them, when I opened them, there's no resonance. Mm. When I opened yours, I was like, holy shit. Mm. So congratulations. It was dope. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that's a that's a deep one. The theme of addiction, and and that's also something that I think is going to be relevant too, just in the flow of the conversation. I I that that's the eighth book that I've written in the last twelve years. Um, just being a holistic health practitioner, nutritionist, personal development coach, and motivational speaker, and you know all the things. And um, that book is definitely the most important thing that I've ever put together, particularly because of the the theme of addiction. Yeah. And, um, you know, we could get deeper into that, but I just really appreciate that. And being here in Austin has been really great for me. As we were talking, I've been in here for about two years and being able to cross connect with so many people, many people that I've known for a long time. And then other people that I've seen on podcasts. And then we met at Kuya originally, um, and had a, had a, a really nice resonance. It was like a few minor conversations that led to more of a drop in um, at the fit for service event that your partner, Caitlin was pretty much hosting was like really the star of the show. And I have so much love and admiration and appreciation for that galactic fairy (laughs) goddess of a human being. Yeah. Um, Me too. Yeah. So, you know, just, just kind of spelunking into the conversation I guess my first question for you is like, what's really alive for you right now? Yeah. Um, The game of life that my nervous system creates for me that I think is the real world is probably the thing that's the most alive for me right now. Mm. But uh, I'm trying to think of what's the most cohesive way, what's the shortest way that I can explain this? Mm. Um, I've tried to write a book. Mm-hmm. I've tried to write like four or five different books over the course of 10 years and I've never been able to do it. And um, 
my recent ayahuasca experience about five weeks ago, it was my 11th, 12th, and 13th time. Actually, I guess my 12th, 13th, and 14th time. And one of the clear downloads was um, instead of trying to write your magnum opus, you know, like this is the inter-dialogue between I and ayahuasca and mm-hmm. I and I and, you know, um, instead of trying to write a philosophical book philosophically for philosophers, take everything that you've learned and make it a game that you teach your children. Mm-hmm. And it was just this huge style flip that took so much pressure. Like the pressure I've put on myself every time I've tried to write a book is I'm trying to write to the top living philosophers mm-hmm. and have it be as tight so that people I don't know will love me mm-hmm. and give me status of philosopher. And, um, you know, just like, being like a quote unquote coach and helping people in real time, I've connected more and more and more and more to that like philosopher to philosopher thing is a game mm-hmm. that uh, at best might help people in a hundred years. Once your ideas can get condensed enough where it can start to be talked about with mm-hmm. average people, mm-hmm. or you could just go help people mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. like, like help people get over addictions or help people get clear on what the truth is that they need to say to their partner or whatever. Mm. And so to try to keep it short, uh, my life vibrates best when I have a very clear project that I'm working on first thing in the morning before I start my life that feels like it's in alignment with my dharma. And I haven't had that since I started this new position as COO of functionally uh, fit for service. It's been about seven months and um, I've never had a chief level job and I've been learning a lot of things. But like I'm a type of plant that knows what it feels like to like wake up every day and the first thing you do for four hours is not look at your phone and to Mm -hmm. write or to perform your dharma. Like, mm-hmm. I know what it feels like. And so I know what it feels like when I don't have that. So I was struggling for a while. And the thing that's most alive for me now is I feel like I've refound the next project, mm. which is going to be to uh, take the core ideas I've been trying to write to philosophers for the last 10 years and uh, share it as a dialogue with like each fit for service cohort as a live lecture series to work out like the childlike games I'm going to share Mm -hmm. with my children about quote unquote, the game of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that resonates a lot. And it sounds like your, your like modality is to gamify life experiences, right? One of them. Yeah. Yeah. An idea that I've been playing with since I was in my early 20s is um, I have a speech impediment that was so bad when I was a child that my mother couldn't understand me and my sister had to interpret what I was saying to let my mother know if I was hungry or like if I needed to go to the bathroom, blah, blah, blah. Um, So that has stuck with me where when I went to college to get a degree in psychology, my like 
all the dreams for my life involved me not being in front mm-hmm. of groups of people, not being on stage, not being in front of a camera or a microphone, you know, because I was afraid of the stutter. And I remember I found a book called Feeling Better by David Burns or Aaron Burns, but he's a cognitive psychologist who wrote a book that teaches cognitive behavioral therapy. And in the introduction of the 20th anniversary of that book, it was writ- the introduction was written by a different researcher who had done a study that found that people who read this book, Healing Good, um, improved on scores of depression higher than the average of going to a person in person and receiving classical talk therapy. And they coined this term called bibliotherapy, mm. which is that if you write a good enough book, you can actually measure that it's more healing on people than a classic intervention mm. with the type of mm. like therapy that you would get off of your insurance. As, as was what cl- classic was in like 1990s, you know, mm. like because this book is older. So that sparked this thing in me where it's like, I want to measure the quality of the things that I create by their ability to be able to help heal people in the absence of my presence. So that's always been a thing that I've been really interested in. And I remember I had this point in college where uh, I hadn't drunk coffee until I got into college and I'd only done Adderall like once in college to prepare for an anatomy test. But so my nervous system wasn't used to like being super. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day I went to Barnes and Noble and it was like 8 p.m. on a Saturday and I bought one of those fucking sugar frappuccino coffee monsters, uh-huh. Uh-huh. drank the whole thing while I was reading and just had this epiphany where I came home yelling into my house. I had roommates, but I don't remember who. Um, and it was like, books are dead. And I felt like I had this clear it's like thing. Nietzsche's God is dead. Right. Yeah. Where I, I felt like I had this clear knowing that like the original technology that did bibliotherapy was the book. You know, like if you like you could almost like <clears throat> externalize your spirit and it mm-hmm. could help people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a 21 year old who thought that he was smarter than everybody else, I was like, the new book are courses. It's videos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a thing that's true there. A recent ayahuasca download is that the next, so if the first generation is book of the type of bibliotherapy phenomena and the second generation is like course, you know, and course is such a loose word, but it's, it's a combo of the written uh, word, audio and video and with the potential of like a living, active, communal dynamic. We just call that course, but like mm. that's a huge jump from mm. whatever mm-hmm. what just book was. Um, but the recent insight was the most effective type of technology to use to help people heal themselves in the absence of the person who created it are games. And mm-hmm. there's a bunch mm-hmm. of reasons why I think that that is the case. There's so much the, neuroscience behind that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that the core reason is a good game, I think you can measure the quality of a thing with the ease of remembering it. Mm, Because I think that that actually reflects Mm -hmm. something deep about the coherence between the thing that we're remembering 
and our form, our structure, our nature. There's something about like a simple, elegant game where you just have to be taught it once and you know it for the rest of your life mm-hmm. and then you do it for fun. Right. But you also learn, like if you're a game designer and you intelligently design, like what are the inherent forms of the game that can start to teach. And so um, I think... It's not that I'm specifically interested in gamification, but it's that I'm interested in trying to create the most elegant, whatever the word we want to use mm-hmm. for the thing that they called bibliotherapy because that only applies mm-hmm. to books. Mm-hmm. And I think games are super potent to do that. Yeah, I mean, that, that brings up quite a bit. I know that so much of your, your work and what you talk about is, is wrapped up in story, in, in myth mythology and and yeah it's just interesting thinking about this like gamification or or that might I, I i resonate with where you're coming from because it's almost like life is a game right it, it is a game already it's right. just a matter of perspective and how we interpret it and how we're interfacing with the game of life and for most people and i'd say for probably most of us at different points in our life the game feels really hard Mm-hmm. right and it doesn't feel like a game mm-hmm. it feels like it feels like a struggle and um and like any good game there's levels and there's there's milestones initiations and you know you need a certain amount of challenge but you also need a certain amount of novelty or fun to keep you engaged with the game but if it becomes too hard and you can't progress then it just becomes a struggle. And that's how I feel like, I know for me, that's when the game gets really dark. And that's when I feel like, wow, I don't want to play this game anymore. And I feel like a lot of people are in that place. Yeah. Um, have, have you heard of the book, uh, Finite and Infinite Games? Of by course, James yeah. Cars? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that book is a modern day Tao Te Ching. Mm. And... <laughs> what he's hinting at like the way i read that book is it's written like a philosopher is writing a philosophy idea to philosophers but the vibe i get from that book is that he's laughing at us (laughs) that he's like giggling at us where Uh he's like Uh how long are you going to read until you see what it is that i am actually pointing to Mm. that can't be said Mm. and i think it really comes down to like what he's hinting at with the nature of the infinite game and being an infinite player. And um, I highly recommend people who are interested in how is life like a game? Finite and Infinite Games by James, I believe it's Cars, C-A-R-S-E, is the best lens that I have found about life being like a game. And... About the like, life gets so hard and I want to give up or I want to just, I just want it to stop. I want the pain to stop. Um, One of the things that I'm really passionate about is exploring myself and deepening my own competence at so that I can teach the different set of behaviors or micro games that you can play Mm -hmm. 
that transform the state of your nervous system. And because your nervous system is generating your subjective experience of the world, which is a very deep mm-hmm. rabbit hole that's very interesting mm-hmm. if you want to go down it, that as your nervous system is, the world feels. Mm-hmm. And so like a thing that I share often is like, if the world feels hopeless, go help one of your friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If the world feels chaotic, make one of the rooms in your house beautiful. Mm-hmm. And once you start to, like, in order to do that for real, when you feel like there's no hope and that life is fucked, it will require kind of like a faith. Yep. But once you do it a couple of times, like, as soon as you taste the change in consciousness that comes from five minutes of deliberately breathing, the whole fucking game changes Mm -hmm. because... From that point forward, some part of you has to know that you are choosing to be stuck mm-hmm. in whatever emotion that you're in because some part of you remembers, I could do five minutes of intentional deep breathing, get myself into a non-ordinary state of consciousness, ask my intuition in that state, what is the next right thing that I can do for the good of all? I know I will get an answer. And that if I do that, everything will be better. I know I have that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to do it. Right. You know? Right. And that's a choice. Yeah. 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 That's really good. And, and speaking about the nervous system, that's a huge bulk of the work that I do and I talk about. And one of the interesting things is like the nervous system is how we're interfacing with the external reality, right? And so to the degree that our internal reality doesn't match our external reality, our perception, our experience of it, is the degree that we feel sensations of anxiety or disarray or disorganization. The nervous system literally goes into like this this panic state because it's essentially not integrated. And this will be interesting to get your take on too. One of the things I've been talking about a lot lately is this word integration and integrity actually meaning the same thing. So if there's a lack of integration, Mm. that just means that there's a lack of integrity with my inner reality and my external reality. Yeah. Oh, there are rabbit holes here that (laughs) we don't need to go down unless we really want to go down. But um, are you familiar with Donald Hoffman, Mm -mm. the cognitive psychologist? Bruh. Uh, (laughs) Um, when you're ready to have like a paradigm shifting Mm. perspective on what perception is and on what the limits of our perceptions Mm -hmm. are and on the fundamental uh, mismatch between our perceptions and the quote unquote objective world, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, I actually was just reading the intro of his book uh, before you came here. Good Lord. But it's a rabbit hole that would take the rest of the convo. And so yeah. I'm just going to put that over here. But anyone who's really interested in uh, challenging their fundamental precepts about the nature of reality mm-hmm. and enjoys well-written books that use uh, science and logic, like... Check it out. Mm-hmm. It's called The Case Against Reality by oh, I love that. Donald Hoffman. That's great. It's so good. Okay. <laughs> um, I do love the idea of integrity 
um, being essentially a mirror for the quality of the integration that you've done and how those words, you know, like I love getting into the etymology mm -hmm. of words and mm -hmm. to see where like, like I almost imagine like all language is like a tree yeah, and to just track like where the roots or where the branches connect to a larger limb and what are all the other, mm -hmm. like it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, one of the models that I use to try to understand in, integrity slash integration, and I would also offer like Jung's version of individuation. I, I feel like mm -hmm. they all nicely mm -hmm. overlap is that there is like a, like, a, like a star inside of you the moment that you're born, like this like ball of energy that like the task of your life is to achieve the type of form where that thing can fully express out mm -hmm. of you mm -hmm. or it will destroy you. Mm -hmm. Totally. There's a great quote yes. from the Gospel of Thomas where Jesus says, if you bring forth that which is within you, that which is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, that which is within you will destroy you. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. like very few mm -hmm. things, every time I motherfucking say them, give me goosebumps yeah. and that's what one of them. What you just said is actually the source point of addiction. Just putting that out there. Like that's so deep and profound. Yeah, the suppression of your, your dharma, your logos, exactly. your potential, that is actually the, you know, your karma. Like that. that is actually the the... The wheel of addiction is the suppression of that and also the antidote to it. Yeah, Carl Jung has, he's got so many great quotes, but one of the quotes he has is, uh, um, if you can get the neurotic to make art, they will no longer be a neurotic. And it's, it's like one of the points at the core of everything that he was teaching was if you can get to the place where you're individuated enough, where the fruit that wants to be born through you gets to be born. There is something like, I'm not getting graphic just to get graphic, but it feels like this is the mm -hmm. right metaphor to use. But if you imagine like the just right shit or the just right vomit, mm. there's this sense of right before it happens, you know, like, that's actually like a birthplace of gnosis because if you had some fucking philosopher or skeptic trying to explain to you with charts that you weren't about to shit, you would just, you would just ignore him and go to the bathroom because you have a gnosis. And that as it passes through you, like there's inherent meaningfulness. Like you don't need any story you don't need any religion, any ideology, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. There's something built into our physiology Yeah. when we align. Because like you're fucking sphincter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you, you have to be in order in order for it to come out. Mm -hmm. And that I bring up that example because if you go look at what a plant does, like I've started to work on a garden uh, with the help of some friends because I need help from friends because I haven't yet learned the intuitions to take care of plants. But like... When you watch a fruit start to emerge out of a flower, it feels like what I would imagine the crowning of a child looks like as it's coming out of the mother. And I think that there is something psychically true mm. 
between those those four metaphors and what our dharma is. It's an innate intelligence, right? It's built into us. That is trying to create mm-hmm. a thing and put it outside of itself mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. and like the hint is that we're all the infinite player playing the infinite game at sometimes choosing to forget so we can play finite games, but that the goal of the infinite game is to keep the game continuing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, and like mm-hmm. the fundamental force of the thing that I think that we, you know, try to contain inside of the word God mm. is the infinite game playing itself. Yeah, the eternal seeking of God, that in of itself is an eternal, infinite game yeah. pursuit. Mm. So I think that there's... Um, I think when we track words like integrity mm-hmm. and integration and individuation, that we're tracking different trails through you know, the linguistic woods to try to get to the same spot. And that same spot is, at least what I would argue, um, the most enjoyable and adaptive way to bear the burden that's inherent in the game of life. Mm-hmm is to play it this way. Uh-huh. That if you play the game of staying in integrity, and it's like we have so much cultural yeah, yeah. baggage around thinking that there's so much, Yeah, there's right. so many like distinctions to that. But the term that I love is if you orient your life to listening for your dharma, mm. and whenever you hear it, dance it, mm-hmm. and whenever you notice that you can't hear it, go find it, and just do that dance mm. of listening for that song. And then whenever you hear it, dancing it, like that to me feels like that's a much more like on the spot type yeah. of metaphor for yeah. our time. Like yeah. one of the things that I see in the spiritual community is mm. there's this unconscious model that life is like school where there are grades and you need to, you will be judged Mm -hmm. by some judge, you know, like the Judeo-Christian God has Mm -hmm. snuck into Mm -hmm. a lot of new age spirituality, but that um, the model that most people use is that they're still being judged and that there's classrooms. And if they ever go back to a previous lesson, they have failed. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I try to offer those people the model of the dancer, which is as long as you are, as long as your heart is breathing, your soul is going to emanate a certain song. Mm. The intelligence of your body will generate negative feelings to help you know that you are out of sync with the song. Exactly. And that it's not a test. It's not like you're wrong or you're right. Yeah. It's child, would you like to dance? child would you like to dance Mm. and then like the child would you like to dance is the part that's trying to bring you back but the way that that's going to feel to the ego is like all the uncomfy things you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that when you're in the song it's flow state the default mode network is not active it's you being in radical communion with either the person that you're talking to the sex that you're having the sports game that you're playing, the blade of grass that you're 
enraptured with, not because you're Walt Whitman, but because you took five grams of mushrooms, you know? Uh, <laughs> There's many ways to get to that point. Yeah. And that it's inherently meaningful in a way that most of, because this is kind of a lateral move, but most of the stories that we use in life are to protect ourselves mm -hmm. from the mm -hmm. infinite immensity of the weight of existence. But that most of those stories are like armor. And it's really hard to be a dancer with armor on. Mm -hmm. And that one of the terrifying things about, you know, the path of Dharma, if you will, is that it requires the armor to be removed and for you to feel the deep uncomfies mm -hmm. is a nice, you know, it's like the way the I'd say it. Deep vulnerability. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but through that comes the radical aliveness of what it feels like to like dance on a battlefield when everyone else is wearing armor and has swords right. and shit. The story that just came to mind is David and Goliath. It's like a perfect uh, allegorical story to that because David essentially he was given the armor and he's this little guy versus this Palestinian giant, maybe a Nephilim, who knows? And <laughs> it's like, he's like, what, what am I going to do? It's just going to weigh me down. Like, so I actually have no use for the armor. And he had to completely be absolutely vulnerable. And, you know, and, and that's kind of, that's the story that came up for me. Like, um, and there's so many, it's so deep. Yeah. Just this idea of, and also what comes up for me just like very practically in our day and age is like the armoring that we we place upon ourselves, the conditioning to protect ourselves from feeling the trauma imprints that have built built themselves into our neuro network and our, our physical body and our emotional body. And it seems to me that the armoring or the de-armoring process is simply a, it's like um it's a cleansing process, a psychic cleansing process so that we can actually become better acquainted with our humanness and to feel our way through our own lived experience that we subconsciously protect ourselves from, 100%. thus armoring ourselves from feeling. Yeah, the way that I connect to it is it's um, every human nervous system it's like having a human nervous system gives you keys to a mansion. And all of us have all of the rooms. Most of the rooms are locked. Most of us spend time in just like five or six rooms. A lot of us love the like addiction room, you know, like let's numb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's almost like one of the first rooms in the house of the mansion is the one where you stay numb and you don't have to go explore the rest of the house. But... Also, like each room in that house of psyche are the possible experiences that the human nervous system is capable of generating. Mm. And so like whatever your deepest personal grief was, like if you can, like that is a room in your psyche. <clears throat> the height of your rage, like the most rage you've ever felt, that's one of the rooms of your psyche. Mm -hmm. The absolute bliss that left you incapable of making any quote-unquote polite choices because of the rapture that was moving through like that is a room in your psyche um 
if you have had moments where you genuinely were planning how to kill yourself, that is a room in your psyche. Mm. If you've felt it, you've unlocked it, but everyone has the rooms. And what I imagine that one of the things that like I'm aspiring to do with my life is uh, every room that has been unlocked through my personal experience, am I capable of going and sitting in that room and just surrendering mm. to what the tone and the vibration of that room is? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm not, those are, that's one of the rooms that if my conversation with you or my projection of what you are takes me back into that room, I am likely to either verbally attack you because I'm terrified to go into that room. And if hmm. my verbal attacking of you can't assuage the fear of my inner child having to go back into that room, I'll fucking fight you. And like most of our, most of our cultural wounding that's alive for us right now is that we have rooms that we've unlocked that we're terrified to go back to that we project other people or other people are able to vibrate in a way mm. where it, it reminds us of that room and we need to go attack them. And it's a whole separate fucking point, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the, the design features by the geniuses who have made these hyper addictive social media platforms it's mm -hmm. it's revolutionized what the game of life is like. Yeah. Cuz since about 2013 our ability to flood our nervous system with cortisol is unprecedented in the entire mm -hmm. history of mm -hmm. humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're watching I think we are slowly but i do think that we are learning how to calibrate to this new force but like this new force this like social media machine is like mike tyson in his first fight totally no one knew who the fuck mike tyson was and we just took one of his just torquing uppercuts and like we're getting our bearings, but like we got smacked as a humanity totally. in the face. But there are researchers that I really respect who are starting to look at this problem. You know, it's taken about 10 years for us to realize that we were just on the canvas for an eight count, but that I see that there is a movement towards mm -hmm. trying to learn how to integrate this stuff because the beautiful side of it is what we are doing right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how thousands of people are going to be able to hear this conversation that weren't present for this conversation. Yeah. And you and I both, almost everyone that we probably know who has found a deeper, more satisfying way to play the game of life, they were able to get there because they were inspired by podcasts. Mm -hmm, totally. And so like there's, it's, it's a whole new game with what's come with social media and it's not all bad, but the bad is it's, tough. It's, it is. Yeah. And when you understand how the dopamine system really works and how it governs a huge bulk of our human experience and it governs our motivational neuro networks, it determines what we're motivated by, what we're not short-term gratification versus delayed gratification. Um, 
and then this drugified technology, because the, the technology has become drugified. And just like any quote unquote external substance, which is really just like a coping mechanism um, that we may imbue as if that's an addictive substance. It's how it's used. It's like tobacco, it's like coffee, it's uh, maybe psychedelics, it's, you know, sex. It's like these all, th- all these things are tools and mechanisms that have utility, but because of the, and I would say because of drugified technology hyper accelerating this process and just the immaturity around it, um, it's, it's caused a lot of impulsivity. That's, that's very like, it's very neurological, it's unconscious. Like people don't even recognize, like we were talking before we got onto the show. Like I have a whole framework that I teach in my dopamine reset on, you know, basically what you were talking about, like not checking your phone first thing in the morning, you know, slowly priming yourself for the day, breathing, praying, meditating, whatever your practice is. And then at some point, an hour or two hours later, turn your phone off airplane and then, you know, have a designated window where I check my messages, da, da, da. Okay, cool. Even I, although I'm conscious of it, I still choose out of that frequently and catch myself. And I can feel the vibration. I can feel the frequency shift in my morning where that overtakes. And now I'm like neuro linked into this like alternate virtual reality that, uh, has effect on the rest of my day. Yeah, one of the things, like, the way that my brain works is in metaphor, and then I make words out of the images <laughs> that I see. But one of the things that came up for me is it's like a plant that's trying to grow through the dirt, but there's debris that's being blown in from the city mm, every day. Mm. And it's like what a good gardener will do is move all of the debris, you know, make sure that the sprout is intact, maybe water it. Uh, If it's a really good gardener, it'll sing to it. It'll dance around it. It will just imbue it with its vibration. And um, I see our dharma as the plant Mm. and our conscious mind as the gardener. And um, it's not like a, ooh, you're bad, but it's just like if you're... If you are trying to create anything in the world and you are unable to put your phone on airplane mode and to sit down for between one to four hours, um, all of the greats I've obsessively studied like what their daily habits were. There's a great book called Daily Rituals that goes through like 280 of some of the most... uh, profound inventors and scientists and Mm -hmm. artists... And what was interesting is all of their daily routines were different, but there was a couple of core things. Almost all of them, no one could do more than four hours of deep work a day. Yeah. It seems to be Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. the rate limiting capacity Mm -hmm. of truly creative deep work per day is four hours. So if you take a moment, like when I found out about that, I was like, okay, if I want to be on par with my highest potential, I only have to do four hours a day. Like that to me is actually like a revolutionary. Right. It's like, I physically can't do more than that. Like there's some type of like, cause God forbid if our brains were able to do more than that, I'd probably be dead. You know, uh like, 
how much I, and it's a whole thing, but I think that there's deep intrinsic reward that comes from the result of deliberate practice towards a skill you mm-hmm. seek to master and you feel yourself growing towards it, mm-hmm. like inherently. But um, like I've watched most of the people that I've shared offices with. The, the absolute anomaly that I realized I was by being around them is it's like the quality of work that I'm able to do when no one speaks to me. I have a single song on repeat. I actually love to do that. Um, my phone's not even at my desk. Is like subterranean level deep work. Whereas if there's even a person in the room who is like doing something, I come up like five levels. Totally, yeah. And if there's someone yeah. talking, <laughs> I am no longer even in the ground. And one of the things that I've noticed, like I've trained at being able to, to do this, you know, because I, I grew up in the same environment that mm-hmm. most of the people who listen to this podcast grew up in. And I had to train myself. And I was lucky enough to be just poor enough where I had what I needed to be okay but I couldn't do anything else. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, you got to make your life, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I didn't have many distractions, but it took me like two years. And I read like every habit change book. I think that's why we resonate a lot. Mm-hmm. Cause like mm-hmm. any habit change book that was written in the last 50 years that it was available on Amazon, I bought and I read and I tried to use it on myself to mm-hmm. try to get my shit right. But that um, to bring it, all the way back, like if you track your relationship with your phone and just not to be mean to yourself, but just to like write down on a note card, a slash every time that you check your phone. And then at the end of the day, look at that note card and just sit with and mm-hmm. surrender into the mm-hmm. fact that it's like 250. Wow. That's, that's wild. And, but that, once you do that, you can then start to, there's one of the most incredible things that I've ever learned in the habit change scientific literature is what they call reactivity. Mm. And what they mean by it is there's a phenomenon that uh, confabulates the accuracy of the data of habit change experiments because as soon as people start to track a behavior, they start to improve the behavior in the direction that they unconsciously what wish What you measure, it. you can manage. Right. And that it's such a strong like uh, effect size mm-hmm. that, that, that it has to be designed out in order to even get an accurate reading of an intervention. But the takeaway for me was there's a force inside of you that I believe is solely concerned with manifesting your dharma. Mm -hmm. And if you give that fucking thing any room, it will make flowers. And it's like, if you just begin to track how often you look at your phone, without you having to read any articles or go to any workshops or whatever, just keep tracking. It will start to heal itself mm-hmm. with you mm-hmm. doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that I find is that the more egregiously addicted you are to a thing, 
the more you'll get from that reactivity effect. But then you'll get to a point where mm-hmm. tracking no longer will improve it. Now you got to start to make changes. That's right. But you can you can do so much of the work without doing any work by just tracking it and just dealing with the with all the feelings that come up when you look at that note card on that first day. Because like the average person, I I I forget what the numbers are, but it's in the hundreds how many times they check their phone. And what I know about me is that even with everything that I've studied and that I've learned, if my phone is at my fucking desk Mm -hmm. when I work, Mm -hmm. the moment I hit resistance in my work, like the moment I can't recall a study or I don't know the exact number or I don't feel like I got the word right or I don't know the exact thing to say to the uh, work colleague, Instagram is open before I've realized, like I haven't been there in months, thank God, but I've, I've had months where like, if you have your phone next to you while you are trying to do deep work, you're not doing deep work. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for me, uh, my soul will eat my life up if I don't do deep work, mm-hmm. you know? 100%, 1,000%. And I want to I want to uh, pivot in a moment here. But what I heard from you, and what came up for me is in quantum physics, they have the observer effect. So just by actually observing something, it has an effect on the molecular structure of the thing. And I've thought about this a lot, and I've seen it in in cases of healing or spontaneous shifts in personality or states or <clears throat> you know behavior where when you consciously actually observe something or observe yourself doing something, it has a fundamental shift. Even if it's nuanced, it's like that moment of actually being fully present to it. Good example, I was on a podcast the other day and they're talking about like, you know, different strategies around healing from addiction. I was like, well, one thing you want to keep in mind is don't quit on quitting, And they're like, oh, that's interesting. I was like, no, let me explain this to you from my own lived experience when I was dealing with this, this, you know, runaway tobacco habit. One of the things I started to do was that every day I realized I just wanted one. I just wanted one rolled up tobacco. And so what I ended up doing was I would go and buy a pack of like American spirits. I'd come home, I'd take one, and then I would put the rest of the pack underneath the faucet, throw it away. This this went on for weeks. And my prior partner was like, she's like, you know, why don't you just keep a pack in? I was like, no, I was like, look, I'm fully aware of what's going on here. It's insane. I was just about to say, I know I'm temporarily insane. That's right. Yeah. But I'm saying that I'm insane. I'm saying that I'm insane. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a, I'm, I'm, I'm going through a process here. It's expensive. It makes no sense, but just follow me out here. And so I just go, I, but I'd watch myself do this. And then eventually it got to a point where I was like, all right, this is ridiculous. This, like, I'm not judging myself. I'm fully aware of what I'm doing, but it got to a point where I'm like, okay, yeah, this is totally ridiculous. And it actually, I was able to start like moving away from that. It was from like me consciously observing myself go through this process instead of trying to white knuckle it yeah there's so in 
There's a whole set of studies in psychology called split brain experiment studies. And they basically have found that it is demonstrably explicitly um, clear that if you cut the corpus callosum, which is the connective mm -hmm. tissue between the two um, hemispheres of the cortex, and you put people in the right type of experiments, they have two distinct personalities. <laughs> and one is the part that talks and tells the autobiographical story. Mm. The other part, loosely, because when you get into actual scientific research, it's not ever as eloquent as our language makes it when we turn it into a story, but it's loosely the personality of the body. Mm -hmm. It can't speak, but it's in the body. And the super interesting thing is um, in the experiments that they've done, the part that is the storyteller will just fucking lie to justify what the body does. Yeah. So it's like fun. there's a yeah. partnership. Uh -huh. And what cognitive psychology, the metaphor that cognitive psychologists use for it is the elephant and the writer. And that that's a good metaphor to convey your body personality is way stronger mm -hmm. than the storytelling part. Oh, yeah. And one of the arguments in cognitive psychology is that the storytelling part evolved so that the elephant could justify its actions to other elephants slash writers. So that humans, that's a pretty cynical view, but there's an argument that that was the evolutionary pressure that even birthed mm. this part of consciousness. I bring that up to bring up um, one of the most beautifully healing things that I've done in my life that was made clear to me through reading all of those books about habit change psychology and also being super interested in psychotherapy is you lie to you. And if you can start to put in practices that help you begin to tell the truth to yourself, mm -hmm. you will start to heal to the degree that you can hold mm. the new truths. And like one of the places mm. that we lie to ourselves is through what we do on yeah. a day-to-day -day basis. Like, and that the, the really beautiful thing is it's like the part of you that I would call your dharma or your daemon, you know, I think there's some interesting technicalities there, but let's just say your dharma. The part of you that births your dharma is not a Judeo-Christian style God that's judging you and that will make you have to repent in order to step back into the flow of your Dharma, no. Mm. And that if you give it any water or any light metaphorically as attention or doing things that support it, it grows. Mm -hmm. It grows without you having to pray to it, without you having to apologize to it, just Give it the, the sunlight of your awareness and give it the water of your deliberate action to feed it. And if you don't have practices in place, you can basically guarantee that you're lying to yourself. And it, it's, not, it's not because you're weak. It's not because it's your fault. It's because you have been molded by evolution to behave a certain way that maximizes your genes' abilities to make babies and it's like, I'm not saying that that's the nature of our spiritual consciousness. I'm saying that the design instructions of the meat suit that your awareness seems to be glowing inside 
has a set of desires that if you try to spiritually bypass, you're going to have a hard fucking mm-hmm. time in life. Mm-hmm. And if you choose to look at and try to understand it and try to almost see your body as this like beautifully powerful animal that you get to grow up with and instead mm-hmm. of trying to beat mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and trying to like, you know, the Buddha's myth is a great example. Like instead of trying to uh, overfeed it and give it opulence, instead of trying to like anesthetize it by just completely mm-hmm. starving it, like sit with it. And the metaphor that I like is like, Dogs have evolved based off of humans' selection of what dogs got to reproduce to the dogs that are alive now, they seem to be most emotionally regulated when their owner is able to lead them as the pack leader. Mm -hmm. I see our ego Mm -hmm. and our body like these type of, like dogs. I like to think of it as like wolves. And it's like, you can't kill this thing without you dying too. Or at at least Mm -hmm. I've met no Mm -hmm. human. Mm -hmm. Like I've had a couple of people say to me, I don't have an ego. And it's like, oh goodness. Like the part of you that said I was the (laughs) ego proclaiming. It's one of those things where it's such, it's like a conversation destroyer. But anyways, move that over (laughs) here. Um, That, like the invitation is to learn how to be a great like leader to the wolf in you and it's like if you're not if you're not a clear leader your wolf will gorge itself until it dies cuz we live in a hyper normal st- stimulus environment where one big mac bite and then a sip of coke mm. is more salt and sugar and fat in one bite than your genes have evolved to understand would be possible in a year. And it's like, if you don't learn how to fucking hunt with this wolf, it's going to die out here Mm -hmm. because this environment is fucking insane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I like to offer that metaphor because I've seen so many people who I love, I've seen their eyes glaze over when I start to talk about this type of stuff because they're is an understandable defense. But what I have found can get through the glazed eyes is it's like story and metaphor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Story and metaphor, story and metaphor. And they slowly are like, oh, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But whenever I come at them with like the science, Mm -hmm. I just like see their eyes glaze over and I see them slowly being like, Eric's doing it again. (laughs) You know, I was a big part of my life in college mm-hmm. so I, I can relate to that deeply yeah yeah there's so much more we could dig into that i want to i want to pivot into psychedelics and plant medicines i don't have any experience with those I don't <laughs> yeah me neither <laughs> but i like to talk about it it's All fine right, cool perfect um we were yeah i think an interesting place to start was before we started recording we started getting into you know, this idea that every every medicine in this context, plant medicines, entheogens, psychedelics, um, empathogens, if you will, um, they all have a particular effect per person, per season. So everybody has everybody that's in this kind of world 
has their own medicine and it has a particular utility for them, um, maybe long-term or in a season in their life. And I think that's kind of how I want to contextualize this. I don't even have a direct question yet, but I just want to kind of lead into it with that. And yeah, the first thing that I want to offer just to kind of like set the table for people, because I like people have such interesting mm-hmm. and funny models about this type of combo mm-hmm. that to not get clear on what is even happening at the table can lead to a mm-hmm. lot of confusion. Totally. And so what I would offer is that, uh, most people who have a resistance towards what we're about to talk about are they are akin to a fish in water that doesn't realize that it's in water. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's so close to it that yeah, it can't yeah. quite see it. Mm-hmm. And culture has provided people through, you know, like mainstream, like just culture itself. It's not a conspiracy. It's just the way human psychologies in groups work is... There's always a set of drugs Mm -hmm. that are allowed and we don't even realize that they're drugs. And then there's a set of drugs that are drugs and they're bad. And so your nervous system is like a alchemical urn. And when you put things into it, it can transform and break those things down into these tiny shapes that Mm -hmm. then fit into Mm -hmm. things around your body that can change the way that you experience the world. Food does this. The quality of your water Mm -hmm. does this. The movies you watch, the way you breathe, what you dance to, what music you listen to, all of those can affect and produce. But people tend to be hyper-focused on if it's exogenous. Mm And it's not food. But even that gets super weird because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so um, the biggest drug that is absolutely allowed in our culture that you could make a very strong argument is more toxic than everything on the psychedelic list other than a boga. And it's sugar. Mm -hmm. Sugar is a drug. Sugar is something like... Show me a definition where sugar and cocaine both aren't drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, like both of them are fucking white. Like that's not a great example. I'm not going to go down there. But the first one is sugar. For Western culture, the next big one is caffeine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Caffeine is super powerful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we just like sports drinks... And drinks that we give to children have higher quantities of sugar and caffeine combined than is possible to find in nature anywhere ever. Mm-hmm. And we just give it to kids. Um, the other big one that is by far the most toxic, like when you look at it objectively, is alcohol. Yep. And that's okay. absolutely, you know, like a green light in our culture. Tobacco is an interesting one because Mm -hmm. the form of tobacco that has been destroyed in our zeitgeist was the like deep bastardization of that plant with like a hundred plus carcinogenic chemicals, Mm -hmm. each one themselves being found in studies to be correlated with creating cancer. And so there's this interesting cultural 
tension between how most uh, native, central, and southern American peoples have used tobacco for thousands of years, and then the weird mm-hmm. American Frankenstein right. tobacco that Pesticide we have. Pesticide sprayed, GMO'd, all of it. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the pantheon mm-hmm. for the person who says, I don't do drugs. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And totally. that's one of the things that I hear often. And it's like, uh, I know what you mean. And you do. And then there's like, if you imagine it's on a spectrum, there's the ordained pantheon drugs that most people don't even think are drugs. And then there's this very weird, very controversial spot in the middle and these are pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I could, one day I probably will, but there is a book inside of me to mm-hmm. try to explain what is going on with pharmaceuticals. But most people who say I don't do drugs, if they're over the age of 40, like nine and 10 of them are on pharmaceuticals. And they call it drugs. Like going right. to the drug pharmacy, the drug store. But they will look you in the eye and say, I don't do drugs. Right. You know, like it's like, that's just, that's one of those places where if you don't look with compassionate awareness, you will lie to yourself. And then there's this whole realm of things that we call drugs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's almost like uh, most people who say I don't do drugs, they're satisfied with the definition of if it's illegal, it's a drug. It's bad. And if it's not, you know, like, that's a whole thing that we don't yeah. need to go down. Yeah. But um, that was the model I wanted to offer mm-hmm. just at the beginning of the talk. I think a great context and framework to yeah. set. Yeah. Because it's like, I just don't want <laughs> anyone listening to this to be able to get with or to be able to get away with saying, I don't do drugs. Right. You know, it's like, Right. It's like, you know, I wrote a book on addiction, right? And the, funny enough, the biggest chapter in the book is called Plant Medicines. And so that distinction is very well laid out. And it's really great that you just laid that out for anyone that's coming to the podcast and, and they know my work and they're like, whoa, okay, like he's talking about psychedelics and these like, quote unquote, drugs. Like, I thought you were like the, you know, the addiction guy. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, just stay, stay with us. Yeah. So um, the way that I see it is I, one of my fundamental ways of relating to life is I'm a curious student that wants to experiment Mm -hmm. because I don't know. And uh, if there, also because my domain is psychology, I personally feel if you're a fucking, if you claim that your area that you seek mastery is the psyche, and you live in 2022 mm. and you aren't consciously exploring altered states of consciousness mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that you can understand the thing that you claim that you're seeking to get mastery in more. I think either you have a huge blind spot of fear mm-hmm. or you're actually not honest about what it is that you're trying to do. Um, I want to create a third category where it's like and maybe you get it and you don't need mm-hmm. to do and, but, mm-hmm. and like maybe maybe um for me i've known since i was 20 that the field i wanted to gain mastery in was psychology and i knew 
since I was 20 that um, I would feel like a fucking hypocrite if I didn't go explore all of these states of consciousness. Mm. And so the way that I approached it in my 20s was I'm like a journalist of the psyche going into the field to bring back trip reports. Like that was my whole framework for the first like five years, you know, and I did, I did a lot, a lot of times, but, (laughs) but every single one was um, intentionally chosen with the lens of like experimenter and researcher. Mm. And I'm going to write my experience to myself as honestly as I can after the fact. And then after doing that enough, I found some where it's like, you know, it's like if you if you just find that you really fucking feel good after you eat bananas, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. you start to eat bananas. Yeah. And there were a couple of psychedelics where like I felt really good for weeks mm-hmm. after I did them. And for me personally, over the course of 10 years, I find that microdosing, I enjoy LSD mm. for like a nervous system reset mm-hmm. that's like a like one every like three month type thing. I really like five to seven grams of mushrooms. Mm. And then like once every six months when I'm ready to like go back and bow before the thing <laughs> yeah. that yeah. just reminds you of like just reminds you that you're a child uh-huh. you know yeah. in in every yeah. sense of the word i like ayahuasca mm-hmm. and i go do that probably once every six months um i personally don't resonate with mdma much i find that it really costs me mm-hmm. to get to a mm-hmm. place mm-hmm. that i don't have a hard time getting to without it so i personally like i'll do it like once or twice a year mm. Um, and if I do it, it's like, I want to be with the person I love. Like yeah, I want to be totally. with my partner. Like yeah. if, 100%, I'm gonna, 100%. if I'm going to yeah. give away four days, you know, and like, I, I have people who are like, Oh no, I feel fine afterwards. I'm like, you know, that example about how we lie to ourselves. If we don't mm-hmm. track ourselves, I, I, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to, yeah. um, and I find that I go through waves with weed mm-hmm. and we talked about this before the podcast started, but it is incredible to me that I could have done psychedelics as much as I've done and my default mode network is as rigid mm, as it is. Mm. Like when I'm in my, I almost never have non-ordinary states of consciousness experiences without either doing breath work or doing a sensory deprivation. Like it almost never just comes into my waking mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a strong, rigid ego. And it's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing psychedelics as much as I do, because um, when I don't, the the default orientation to forgetting and thinking that you understand how things work and you become a bit arrogant, mm-hmm. you become a bit rude and a bit short. Yeah. And it's like, motherfucker, you just need five grams of mushrooms to be humbled. To be That's an important distinction. It's not to go off and like, 
have a good time or to escape even. Not for me. It's like I, there is no escaping. Like yeah. this, I don't go into an ayahuasca ceremony or any other, you know, <clears throat> altered state ceremony or experience to try to escape. I may need to take a break from the 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 density of the 3D and the mundundity, but it always brings me it, it always brings me face to face with myself or parts of myself, whether it's an ecstatic experience that I need like a psychic lubricant and just to, to lubricate the neural networks in my thought process that have just gotten really rigid. Yeah. And it allows me to, you know, experience a, a clarified field of perception that actually gets me into the driver's seat of whatever decisions I'm, 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 uh, I'm, uh, hesitating over because i'm in my head mm -hmm. it helps like shift that sometimes or in the case of ayahuasca it it brings me back to the dojo so it's like a, so it's like on some of these for me is like there's a psychic reset there's a heart reset there's a physiological reset in the case with ayahuasca for me that's a soul reset yeah an interesting thing uh is it's like what are we really saying when we call someone like a druggie or something? Mm. You know, it's like, um, why, are, why are we concerned with what other people do mm. with their nervous system? And I think, like, if we steel man it and we don't straw man it and we really connect to, like, why do humans have this, like, impulse to monitor and regulate what other people are doing with their bodies. And it feels like um, there's one very big game of life, and we could just say like the actual game of life. And then there's a bunch of smaller games within that. So you could imagine that there's like this huge park that has a bunch of tennis courts and basketball courts mm -hmm. and football fields and soccer fields, but there's one massive park. That's the game of life. You get to play any of the games, theoretically. Your body and what your body can do will actually be a, a constraining force on which of those games you can even play in mm. any sort of way that's fun at all. Mm. And what I mean is, like, um, the game of school has a lot to do with who can talk the best, who can regurgitate the best, who can control the energy of a classroom. Like very, there's a bunch of games happening. Mm -hmm. And all of these kids are trying to vie for a spot in the hierarchy, regardless of whether or not you think it's fair. It seems to be an implicit form of our human nature. And that um, we're really upset if people don't play the games that we are playing, if we are playing a game we don't want to play because we mm. think we have to. Mm. And so there's the game of like, put on your fucking tie, come into work and suffer with us, mm. mm -hmm. you know? And that like, if you're just, if, if you would rather choose to be homeless by choice and you're outside and you look in on the people who are shaving their face every day and they have the fucking suit where it's almost like a, a, a noose. Mm -hmm. I, I think that there's a unconscious protective mechanism where it's like, fuck that guy. 
Mm-hmm. Fuck you mm. for not. And we almost don't know how to finish the rest of that sentence in an honest way. But but I think at its core, it's like, dude, we're we're in here killing ourselves. Why are you not joining us? You know, and like uh, in the '60s, there was an explosion onto the fucking scene of a new type of quote unquote mm-hmm. drug, mm-hmm. where it seemed to not ruin people's lives most of the time because there absolutely are cases where mm-hmm. people's default mode network is fragile enough yep. where they can take these things and yep. it can ruin their fucking absolutely. lives. And that is absolutely. But most of the people, most of the time, ended up creating lives that were more satisfying and fulfilling on average than the people who weren't. There was a relaxedness and a playfulness, and I'm painting super broad strokes, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I'm talking about like when you take all of them and average them together yeah. with all the people that didn't. And I think that what I have found is um, for me personally, the best way that I can describe it is it's like I'm in a village where like half of the people in the village have not ever seen a dragon and believe Mm -hmm. that like the order of the village is unbreakable. It will continue because it always has. But then there's half of the people who have either like seen a charred field from Mm -hmm. dragon fire or they've smelt it across the mountain or they've seen a scale. And then there's a few who have like, they've looked into the eyes of a dragon and they know that that type of thing exists. And there's this like humbleness Mm -hmm. that comes from the people who have actually faced the dragon. Cause I think that there's people, we all know like spiritual people who do mushrooms or whatever, and they're just douchier douches, you know? And and (laughs) my, I don't know exactly what that is and I don't know why that is, but my intuition is that if you play in the shallow end of this pool, you can try to front like you've been in the deep to try to gain status for the people who are attracted to the pool, you know, to, I'm using a bunch of metaphors here, but you guys are, I think you guys are tracking. But there's a thing, you know, it's like... Nietzsche quote, and it's, uh, if you stare long enough into the abyss, the abyss will stare back into you. Mm-hmm. If you spend long enough fighting monsters, you too will become a monster. Right. But the vibe there is it's like the devouring awe of eternal God is apprehendable if you get in the right space and it will utterly render you asunder in a way that like it it the people who have touched that place they have this like fundamental like humor Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. kindness Mm -hmm. and humility Mm -hmm. and like wantingness to help like when you stand in the full just rapturous devouring awe of that thing and then in that moment you choose to help people mm-hmm. at least that's what has happened for me and people close around me is it's like when you're in the presence of that quote unquote a monster 
that is one and the same as the abyss, the response can be like, I give up, fuck this. Mm -hmm. You know, then you just turn away from it for the rest of your life. Or the response can be, um, I have the opportunity with my life to help people. And hopefully when they have to face this, they can endure it, you know? Mm. And so <clears throat> psychedelics for me fundamentally are <clears throat> one of my self-care practices to catch myself when I lie to myself. Mm. So in the mm. same way that we were talking about that note card, <clears throat> the mm -hmm. way I, my personal relationship with psychedelics is such that I will fucking... The thing in me that is amplified when I take a psychedelic will absolutely take me to task in the way that I want it to mm -hmm. so that I can be more of the human that I want to be in the world. Yeah. And it's like, I have such an easy tendency to be arrogant mm -hmm. and knowing that I have like ayahuasca waiting for me in a couple of months all the time because I, I, I prefer to do it like once every six months. This is just... It's this gravitational, because I'm not enlightened. Mm -hmm. I'm not done. I really see myself as it's like, uh, I want to fucking destroy you at basketball. I want to mm -hmm. feel smarter than you, but mm -hmm. I also want to learn from you. Mm. Um, I'm a fucking animal mm -hmm. with consciousness, and I don't understand what it is or how they're related. Like I'm still actively in the game of life. And I have found that psychedelics are some of my favorite, like, review opportunities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's really well put. And that's exactly my experience, too. And, yeah, it creates this, like, amplifier effect, to your point. And, I mean, there's so many different, like, ways we can just kind of distinct between, like, the productive and counterproductive use of these things because mm. they're, they're tools and they're they're yeah. earth-based medicines earth-based tools some of them you know uh chemically chemically based but have like really profound utility in the right set and setting the right context and just like anything a tool can be used productively or counterproductively or with ill or good intention yeah. and that intention is critical because what I find with these things is that they have a way of revealing more of who you actually are. And that's, that's my whole thing is I'm in a continual pursuit of inquiring into who I am, like your house metaphor. Like there's doors within my psychic mansion of lifetimes that I'm, I'm, I sense, I can feel, I can hear the tone, I can feel the the you know i can feel the the frequency of it but i can't quite i'm i'm moving in the dark right and i need something at different times to help me see through the dark passage but that's a that's a thing i'm voluntarily choosing and um i just feel like if anything in the time that we're in the most confusing the most perplexing the most prophetic time that we're in by all accounts to, you know, everybody's all, it's your choice what you do with what, but for me, it makes no sense now that I've had those experiences and I understand what they are for me. And I understand that it's an infinite game. It doesn't make any sense for me not to use the tools 
and to learn how to use the tools better for my personal pursuit. 100%. And it's, it's actually not even a part of my conscious experience at all that I have to defend my use yeah. to anyone. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm inside of a bubble, inside of a bubble, inside of a bubble, but it's like, no one's telling me what to eat. I'm not even going to have that conversation with you, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if you want to tell me what you eat and if you want to talk about how to cook, fuck yeah. Uh, if you're my roommate, Graham, you're, you're going to hear me tell you about how I eat and you'll graciously endure me talking about, I've, I've moved to like uh, fruit and meat mm-hmm. where I've just mm-hmm. cut out like all seed oils, mm-hmm. all processed shit. And I just feel fucking fantastic. But anyways, um, I'm not, it's, it's so interesting, but it's like to the degree that you can even be drawn into an argument where you're moved emotionally at all is the degree to which some part of you mm-hmm. believes that you should or that you're doing a thing wrong. You're doing wrong. something wrong, yeah. Like, and there's nuance there, but it's like almost no one listening is going to let someone tell them about like how they eat. I mean, I guess there are people out there who their entire fucking oh, there's a whole community of feels fucking yeah. But for people who are not asking for input, you know, like I'm I'm not asking anyone for permission, and I'm not doing it in a dumb enough way where I Mm -hmm. I have an an Mm -hmm. issue with the cops. And it's like, like here here's a deep thing I think to feel into is uh. The only thing that you are going to, no one is going to be able to uh, help you die. Like in that. Well, in, now you're hitting, now you're really hitting it. Right. That yeah. In that moment where you're dying, it is just you and your relationship to your experience. No one is going to be able to help you in that moment. You have to die on your own. And that, so because that's coming, your most intimate mm. relationship is like your quote unquote awareness mm. and its relationship to the contents of awareness that we call experience. That is the most intimate relationship. And the fundamental truth of how, how phenomenology unfolds for all conscious beings is no one can make you do anything in that realm. That's between you and you. Mm. Like no, even like, I think Viktor Frankl was pointing Mm. to this Mm -hmm. when he was in Auschwitz Mm -hmm. and he was saying that the last of the human freedoms is its ability to choose its attitude in any given. Fundamentally, even if you are imprisoned and tortured, you have the free will to choose your how your awareness relates to the contents of awareness so psychedelics get in between that space yeah and it's as if and this is what people who use these plants often talk about is that specifically the plants seem to have a personality Mm -hmm, flavor mm -hmm, to them mm -hmm. and so if you think about this for a moment plants and then this thing that we call like non-ordinary states of consciousness but it's like 
these type of plants and the mystical experiences are the only time mm-hmm. when it feels like a third person mm-hmm. gets into that most intimate space in us where you know the first person is our raw awareness the quote unquote second person are our contents of experience so like what is your relationship to pain mm. to sound to constriction to expansion and that you can actually ingest things where it feels like like a like a guide yeah <clears throat> comes into that space and it's like oh and it's not speaking but it's like i can feel that you are constricted around this feeling i'm going to help you relax around that feeling so that for the rest of your life you at least have the memory of what it feels like to not be in resistance yeah. to that thing. There's a new reference point created. And so to like bring the whole point home, no one can and no one will mm. tell me and influence me in how my awareness relates to my contents of experience. Mm. That's beautiful because we're the big theme in our world right now is self-ownership and sovereignty and whether it's through the psychedelic experience or any other experimental exploration in our multifaceted reality the reality that we're living that we're creating that we're experimenting with it's the sovereignty to choose of your own volition and and experiment and find out what works for you some things are going to work some things won't but you won't know unless you yourself choose to have an experience and by the way i don't think either one of us are saying you need to choose to have this experience no but we're just we've both chosen that so many of the people we know and we all have our own unique experiences um and it's it's kind of a it's a movement that has a momentum wave right now in the world for very good reason but it's also a topic that is still in its maturation process. And I think that's also why I'm, I'm, I enjoy talking about it a little more these days than I used to. Um, I'm going through my own maturation process, my own integration, um, have worked through deep, deep amounts of physical, subconscious, ancestral trauma, things that I didn't even really recognize, particularly through ayahuasca ceremonies, really recognize were laid in my psyche and have been like unearthed and unlocked and then helped me heal in those moments, like integrate something within my being that gave me the ability to move forward where maybe before I just felt stuck or I just, I didn't have the key to open up that door. Um, And with everything said, then it's like, I now have the, the quote unquote option, the choiceless choice to now Right. walk that walk into the in this thing about the the entheogenic experience from a from a medicine ceremony intentional perspective i know for me when i go into an ayahuasca ceremony that i'm kind of making an unconscious deal with god in a way because i know that no matter what happens in there once i come out of it and go back into my life to the degree that i'm not acting in alignment with now what has been given to me as far as like the experience, I'm going to feel pain in my regular life. Yeah. So it kind of, it's like, it forces me into 
alignment, either through my own, my own choice to do it through grace or through the pain of being out of integrity. Yeah, the thing that you said that really <clears throat> sparked me was the choiceless choice. And that, like, there's a... I'm trying to feel where I want to start this thread here. But <clears throat> there is a movement in our time for sovereignty and mm-hmm. self-ownership. And then uh, there's always been a tension in large enough groups of, like, the will to the individual mm-hmm. and then the will to the group. Um, and that both have pros and cons. Yeah, And uh, it's a much larger conversation, but evolution has seemed to see to that the way groups grow is there's tendencies of about half that tend towards the will to the individual, roughly mm-hmm. speaking, mm-hmm. and about half towards the will of the group and that the tension between those two creates a type of integrity mm-hmm. that keeps the like cell alive. Mm. I think the cell and the body is a really great metaphor for dharma in the sense of you need to be free to the degree that you can give up your choice and surrender to your dharma. Mm-hmm. You cannot be mm-hmm. compulsed into your dharma mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and no one knows what your dharma is but you right. so like the at least the way that i see it like the ultimate expression of the will of the individual is that the ingredients of the culture need to be such that the individual can grow to a place where it can choose mm. to give up choice to surrender to dharma Whereas, um, and, and what Dharma will do, if you surrender to your Dharma, at least in my story structure, um, I believe our Dharmas come to us from the intelligence of the planet, of the mother that makes mm-hmm. our bodies. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that totally. this is completely, you know, a story, but it resonates with me for right now and I will update it as I learn new things. But the way that I see it is that the earth is a super intelligence that from its intelligent form, its information, it has birthed all the things that come out of this planet. And that if you imagine almost like each heartbeat mm-hmm. or like pulse of the earth is a new generation of organisms born. And that it intuitively, it, it can feel like what parts of the collective tapestry need to be filled per generation and that our genius or our daemon or our gift or our dharma is linked to the fabric of the dharma of the planet. And that just like a body that's healthy will create a new brain cell Mm. or a new spinal cell or a new kidney cell, like humanity is like a body. I see the heart or almost like the... Yeah, I guess like the heart is the earth and it's trying to create the just right cells to actually create what humanity would be, which we have never seen. Mm-hmm. Like we, we have mm-hmm. the word for it. And that a individual cell that only seeks to be sovereign becomes a cancer cell because mm-hmm. it's completely disconnected from the rest of the body and it just 
not just. It, self, it seeks to self-maximize its own growth because it believes that it's alone. But if you try to make a kidney cell be some other cell that it's not meant to be, it, it, it won't function and it will die. And so like the alchemy of the left and the right, you know, of like mm-hmm, energies mm-hmm. as I see it, is it's like the wisdom of the right is that you cannot, the only way to find your just right spot in the body is you have to be able to choose. And then what the right gets wrong is that if you don't end up integrating into the body, you become cancerous to the body that birthed you. And then the like positive function of the left is we are a body. We are a single body. We've got to figure how to be a body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the um, where the left goes wrong is no one can tell you where you're supposed to go or, or how you're supposed to be. It, it will not resonate. It will not work. And so like um, I bring that up to really drive at this point of we are in a cultural war. Yeah, 100%. Like, and if, if you don't have the eyes to see it, then you're either not looking yeah. or you're like so in the crossfire that you're stressed and you like, one of the things that weighs on me is like, I came from a family where all we watched was whatever was on mainstream TV. Mm-hmm. Every all of our possible conversations were constrained by what was happening on TV. Um, We were eating food that was making us sick. My parents had to work insane hours for us to worry just enough about money to be able to pay bills. And like the strain on the family to just survive was so heavy that there was no extra energy to go read studies that would contradict things that we saw on the news. Like we had none of that. And that, um, I share that story because for the people who have the extra resources in their life where they can even see that we're in a cultural war, um, each of us are responsible for how we speak about the groups Mm -hmm. in the culture that we don't agree with because the quality of our speech will either add to the war Mm -hmm. or can add to the healing. Yeah, And that um, I just wanted to bring that up because I think a lot of people equate the like sovereign self-ownership as right. Yeah, yeah. And I really wanted to flesh it out. Yeah, because like truly what you do for yourself dharmically always results in helping other people. Like dharma is never individualistic, but the individual has to go on a personal quest in order to, you know, like the hero's journey, but it always comes back to helping people. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think we're, I mean, I know we're all on our own personal hero's journey. We, you and I would not be sitting here. Our groups of friends would not be like the, the improbable 
calculations of how any of us even stumbled upon each other, let alone the journey of our own lives and those people listening to this podcast is staggering. So there is an innate intelligence in this design, this game called life, and we're all we're all instruments on it, but we all have like our own autonomy to choose and choice point left or right. And, and somehow there does seem to be some like, like cosmic GPS system that will reroute us, even if we make a left turn when we should have made right. And it's like coming back to what we were talking about before, which is coming back to the body, feeling your nervous system, feeling for a yes or a no, a safe or unsafe, that kind of basic priming and tuning into your body because your body has the it has the intelligence it has the guidance but you know how much conditioning and armoring is there there that we have to let go of um before we can come back to self yeah i can feel that one of the things that like my body will fucking try to trick my ass if if i ask it the is this safe or not safe yeah it very rarely yeah. is my intuition being like, if you go down this path, you'll die. Uh-huh. No, it's the, uh, <laughs> the, I don't know what words to use for it without sounding like I'm attacking it, but like the weak bitch part. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's like, yeah. no, I don't want to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like it is almost a daily occurrence where there's a point at the beginning of a workout where it's like, you're done. This is, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know, it's like, we've been on a treadmill for like four minutes, dog. And it's like, (laughs) I know that that's that first window Mm -hmm. that if you just ignore what feels like the intelligence of your body is. Right. Like a whole new thing comes online. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. like, it's it's like, if I were to check in and ask my body, do you want to go work out today? My body is going to say no yeah. five out of seven days yeah. when I'm on the couch. Mm-hmm. As soon right, as I right. walk into the gym, because I said yes when it actually was a no, mm. I feel all these all these like parts of me start to like come online. Yeah. And by the time I'm doing the first deadlift, I'm like, thank God I didn't listen totally. Every to time. the part that Every was like, time. you know what our truth is, Eric? <laughs> yeah. Our truth is it's not safe to go. And you should stay home. And yeah. so like one of the things I've been playing with, I've had a very long history with trying to heal my body from an injury that I got when I was in high school. And <clears throat> the sanctity of the intuition seems to be primary when it comes to psychic phenomena. Mm, like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but yet the dimension of the body feels like if you have trauma, which means Mm -hmm. basically all of us, where you're protecting from trauma in your body is actually where I find my signals that I get that feel true, that I can only discover they're not true by ignoring them. And then I have a release and a breakthrough and an insight that I wouldn't have got if I didn't, tell my you know the healing and or if i didn't tell my sacred yes no Mm -hmm. and that i think that Mm -hmm. there's an interesting like spiritual bypass trap that can happen for people who aren't 
you know, like who only see like a meme, you know, and who only mm-hmm. see like the yeah. like, you know, like the sad replacement of a essay is mm-hmm. like the swipe carousel on Instagram yep. where it's like, it feels like it's conveying like a deep fact and it might be true, but just the constraint of the medium is a lack of nuance. And I feel as if I see many people, not many, but enough for it to feel like I see a pattern where they use the like, what's my body's truth here mm-hmm. as like, it feels like there's stain trapped. It's almost like if you imagine the room metaphor again or the house of the psyche, it's like the rooms that have scared you, Yeah, you, you pretend are locked, yeah. but it's just because the door is closed. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, just turn the knob, you know, and go in. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, <clears throat> and that's the safety unsafety thing is like a deeper, deeper exploration and I, the way I look at it, and we're, we're reaching the conclusion point, I feel, but the way that I look at it just physiologically is just tuning into like your expansion or contraction mm. and, and inquiring about it, not making a decision out the gate, but really like using breath work and dropping in and feeling like, okay, like I feel a contraction around this decision. I feel tight. Um, let me sit with that and inquire before I try to make a decision and if I stick with that long enough, I find that that probably means that there's something off about that. It's like a guttural intelligence yeah. and getting deeper into the, the gut instinct versus like, oh, my heart. And that, now if your heart is wounded, that's not a great, reliable place to make decisions from. And also an interesting thing is I... I one of the things that I love to look at, because I can feel that I'm seeing information that I don't yet understand, mm-hmm. but I know mm-hmm. it's deeply true, is any scientifically accurate time lapses of how a zygote turns into a mm-hmm. newborn. And I saw one recently from an angle that was new where um, you know, the first thing that like starts is the spinal cord. And then there's like small, like mm. little, almost like amphibic appendages. But the first two major things that were, that grew large enough to have a shape was the head and the stomach. And they were almost of equal size. And the stomach got larger first. And then the brain slowly got larger than the stomach. Mm-hmm. And I forget the technical phrase for this, but there's a perspective on biology where it's like it makes the a, the assertion that the morph the morphological changes in form that the zygote goes through to get to the newborn mm-hmm. reflects what our evolutionary stages mm-hmm. were, mm-hmm. and it's almost like you are seeing the memory imprinted in the genes. It's almost like trying to bootstrap mm-hmm. the you know mm-hmm. thing. And that if that's true, that a significant period of our existence on this planet was mediated by the intelligence of our gut. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's mm-hmm. why it's called the first brain. Right. So 
And yeah. I just wanted to offer that. To yeah. The, that, I agree. And we're 100% aligned on that, like guttural instinct, guttural intelligence. Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> this was, this was, it definitely was a rabbit hole, a series of them. And wow. Yeah. I, a lot for all of us to integrate and process here. Um, where can people find you? Um, ericgossi.com. I have a newsletter and then my name on Instagram and that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty much it. Yeah. Oh, and my podcast, The Myths right. That Make Us. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much. Thank you, brother. For this incredible drop in. Yeah. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. <laughs>